The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 774. If you don't own a Bible, please stop by the information table after the service. We'd like to give you one as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep his commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What else do I lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Deanna. Good morning. Uh, let's take a moment and pray. We're, we're in a passage today that, in my estimation, is as like on the nose of what our culture needs as, as anything I'm reading in the Gospels of Matthew. Even, even this week, just reading through this and feeling the Holy Spirit pressing in new places in my own heart and life towards things that I've been holding on to too tightly, things I've been reluctant to let go of, areas where I've been slow to surrender to Jesus, and just reminding me, the Spirit of God reminding me that Jesus is better. He, he, really is, he really is better. 
and he's worth centering the, the whole of our life around him, around him, his kingdom, his gospel, his mission, his purposes, his presence. And let, so let's pray that the Holy Spirit would work among us to awaken us to the beauty and the treasure that is Jesus. So would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we come right now and we confess that we need you. And I, I have this sense all, all week, this sense that you, you, you really care about this moment in our lives. There are, there are people uh, in this room who have been giving their lives fully to pursuits that will not last, building treasures that will not endure, trying to establish meaning in things that can never give meaning, trying to suck satisfaction out of things that can never give the kind of satisfaction that we truly long for. People that have been living their whole lives in that way. And that you want to redeem them, you want to rescue them today. To bring them to life, joy, wholeness, and there are many among us, and I feel myself in this category, that just settle into sort of a malaise of like lethargic spirituality, a lethar- like a, a lethargic Christianity. Just kind of like settled into a new status quo of you're around in our life, but you're sort of an accessory to our pursuit of joy. And so would you today rekindle passion for your glory, rekindle affection for who you are, Rekindle in us a bold, courageous faith that will be surrendered to you, that will be risky, that this community, from this community, a generation of men and women would be raised up to live for you, Jesus, and for your kingdom, that we'd find life in you. And so would you do that this morning? Would today be a, yeah, a catalytic day in our journey with you? So pour out grace on this moment, we pray in Christ's name, amen. One of the things I enjoy about the summer and the fall in Denver is the amount of new people that are coming to the city. Some of you kind of get like worn, worn down by the amount of new people that come to the city, but it's fun because it's like people are coming to enjoy a city that I love and they've come to enjoy things that I enjoy and that we enjoy. I was looking up this week about how many people move to Denver, and, uh, and it was interesting. The article I was reading was talking about the two places, statistically, where most people come from. What are they? <laughs> Texas and California. Texas and California. A lot of people from Texas, a lot of people from California. And coming from all different places, all different cultures, all across the U.S., all around the world, uh, a lot of people come to Denver. Why? Because it's a compelling place to be. I mean, the mountains loom as this, like, most clear call, like, come to the mountains. Uh, we all huddle up in the city to work to sustain our recreational habits in the mountains. Like, we just, like, huddle here. We're here to be close to the mountains. We work together in the city to be close to the mountains. And the mountains offer so much that's fun and exciting and compelling. Summertime recreational activities, wintertime, just beauty, glory, rivers, majesty. It is, it's stunning. But the city itself is also ha- has a lot to offer. There are so many different uh, kind of, it's a fun sort of like laid back, but super active culture. So you get to be around some people that are like mostly laid back. You sort of get the Midwestern warmth, but kind of like West Coast coolness, not too much of either. And, uh, and it's active and it's a, it's a joy to be here. There are coffee shops and breweries and restaurants and all the major sports team, Broncos tomorrow night. Let's go, Russell Wilson. Let's, let's do this. Expectations are high, uh, really high. 
feel sorry for the guy. I'm like, this is going to be, we, we expect him to save the Broncos for, you know, forever. Um, but it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot that would compel somebody to move here. But there's one big catch. And that one big catch, depending on where you're moving from, there's one big catch. If, if, unless you're moving from the Pacific Northwest or Southern California or maybe D.C. or, you know, Bay Area or Manhattan, the big catch is the cost of? Cost of living. It's an expensive place. Housing is rough. Rough. If you move from Kansas to Denver and you're like looking at housing and you're like, all right, I don't want to buy a house. And you're like, okay, there's a nice two bed, one bath, 400 square foot for a half million dollars. Uh, cool. You know, super, you're like, what could you buy in Kansas for a half million dollars? And, and the answer is a lot. I mean, like a lot, a lot of house, a lot of house where so you're looking for an apartment and you're like one room in this apartment shared with four people, you know, costs a lot more than you expected. It, it's, it's a lot. And so we experience, when you're, when you're looking at housing in particular, you experience what people call sticker shock. Sticker shock is, is the experience of a potential buyer when, when you're looking at something you desire to acquire and, and the cost of acquiring that is far greater than you expected. So there's something you want. You're like, this is cool. Denver, life in Denver, mountains, culture, city, that's fun. And, then, and you look at how much it's going to cost. And all of a sudden, you're kind of, you get a pit in your stomach, like, oh, you know, uh, that's, whew. And you have to, you have to evaluate. You got some soul searching to do. And here's the question you have to ask. If you're going to overcome that sticker shock, you have to decide that the value of life in Denver is greater than the cost that it will require of you. That's what you have to decide. For whatever reason, whether it's mountains or a job opportunity or family or friends or culture, you have to decide that the value of the life you're trying to build in Denver is greater than the cost, than the cost. And if you decide that it's not worth the cost, which is your prerogative, and plenty of people are also making the decision at this point in our time in the city to, to decide, never mind, it's not worth the cost, and are leaving the city, right? If you, if you decide that it's not worth the cost, you'll back, you'll back away from that. And that's the situation that we're finding ourselves here in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we come into contact and interaction between a young man who has a lot of wealth, but he has a sense that he's missing something. And what he longs for is this fullness of life, this fullness of joy, the life of the kingdom of God. He has this awareness that there's more to life than the life he has built with the wealth, the possessions, the influence, the morality. He has this sense that there's more, and he wants that life. He desires that life, but when he comes up to Jesus and says, how much is it going to cost? What do I need to do to get it? He experiences substantial sticker shock. The cost of discipleship is greater than he expected. It's greater than he expected. And in fact, when he sees the cost, he has to evaluate, is it worth it? And in this passage, with this particular man in the passage, it says he walks away sad. He walks away sad. He, he determines that it's not worth the cost. At least at this moment in his journey, he determines it's not worth the cost. At the same time, there are people in this passage who had decided that it was worth the cost and had given their lives fully to Jesus, who had left friends, family, careers to follow Jesus. And it's through those men and women that the world has fundamentally changed. People who counted the cost, surrendered their life, the fullness of their life for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, gave themselves to Jesus, followed him, and trust in his love for them, his presence, and his promise that there is a future. 
There's future glory that awaits all those who lay their life down with hope in Jesus. And that's what we want to look at today and kind of bring us that moment, to bring us that moment where you're paying attention to there is a cost to discipleship. And it might be more than, you, than what you think it is. There's a cost. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And each of us come to this moment with Jesus where you get confronted with, with that moment. Is it, is it worth it? Do you see, do you believe that it is truly worth it? So let's, let's look at the passage here. We're in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to work through it. Pay attention to some different dynamics as Jesus is honing into the heart of this man, bringing him really down to the deepest desires of his heart and showing us two different alternative responses as he offers life to all who would follow him. Look with me. This is Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? man came up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? A couple quick notes. One, about the man. We learn in this passage that he's a wealthy man and he's a young man. The Gospel of Luke also refers to him as a ruler, somebody who has influence. And in their culture, wealth was seen as a sign of God's blessing. Wealth was seen as a sign of God's blessing. And so this person, if you're trying to get like an image of, of who this person is, this person has money has possessions, has morality, has influence, has a lot of the things, many of the things that many people try to acquire and build today. Build wealth, gain more possessions, gain influence. There's a youthfulness, there's a morality. Like if there was like a first century, like, you know, uh, people of Israel bachelor, you know, episode or season, like this guy would be like a prime candidate. Like he's a catch. He's a catch. He's, He's like a good dude. Money, possessions, influence, leadership. Like he's got the whole thing. And yet, he senses something is is lacking. He senses something's lacking. He senses something's not there. And so he approaches Jesus and he asks, what good deed, what good thing do I need to do to get eternal life? Now, clarification number two. When we hear the word eternal life, we are conditioned by a lot of like unhealthy distortions of, of good gospel truths to think eternal life means life after death. Like, he, like what the man is fundamentally asking is, Jesus, what do I need to do to go to heaven when I die? And that's not what he's asking. It's not what he's asking. In fact, it's not a question that was in the mind of anybody in the first century of what do I need to do to go to some future location when I die? What he's asking for, and most of the questions in the New Testament revolve around the desire for eternal life or the participation in the kingdom of God, both of which have eternal ramifications and realities, truly, but both of which have right here, right now relevance as well. When he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to have eternal life? The way Jesus will talk about eternal life, you can read about this in John 17, 3, in this incredible prayer between Jesus and his Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That life is fundamentally to be in right relationship with the creator of the universe. Life is fundamentally to know the love of God, to know his presence and his nearness, and to trust in his wisdom for life. Life is found right here, 
Right now, eternal life is found when you know the grace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God. You know the presence of God and you walk in the wisdom of God. That is life and that kind of life, that quality of life is a kind of life that transcends even death. Not even death can separate you from that kind of life. In fact, death is a gateway into a deeper, richer, fuller experience of that life as we anticipate the time when Christ comes again and makes all things new. What this person is asking is not, hey, Jesus, can you help me kind of like tie up this like heaven or hell card that that I might kind of have to face in the future? He's saying, I long for the life that is truly life. I long for the life of your kingdom. I long for the life that you promised from, from the Old Testament that the people of God have been promised that there's a day coming when everything wrong will be made right and when we'll be restored to God and experience the mercy of God and the grace of God and the righteousness of God and the rest of God and the peace of God and the security of God. I want that life. What do I need to do to get it? Because I've got money. I've got relationships. I've got influence. I've been obeying the rules. I've been doing the stuff. Like I've got the life that everybody's trying to live but something's missing. This is where I think it is so relevant to us here and now. What what the man is identifying is there is within him and there is within all human beings a sense of the divine. There's a sense that life apart from God, life building our own sense of identity through accumulation, achievement, morality, relationships, family, career, recreation, comfort, experiences, pleasure-seeking, it's not still something missing. Uh, There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor we talked about a lot uh, who wrote a book called The Secular Age that was summarized and made more accessible by another philosopher named Jamie Smith. And that book is called How Not to Be Secular. Phenomenal book if you're like, you know, heady a little bit and like learning about cultural realities. Fascinating read. Uh, Jamie Smith essentially says that what we're doing in our culture in the secular age, we've talked about this a lot because it's relevant to our church in Denver today, is we try to build meaning and and value and satisfaction in what these guys call the imminent frame, which is the things that are both temporal and material, the things that are here and now and immediate and the things I can touch and see and accumulate and achieve and, and accomplish. And we can do a pretty good job. There's a lot you can do. There's a lot of cool stuff you can do in this world. There's a lot of fun things you can do, a lot of meaningful things you can do. A lot of things you can do with the family, a lot of things you can do with your freedom, a lot of things you can do with recreation and hobbies and vocation and career and a lot of things to enjoy. Like there's a lot to be experienced in the imminent frame. All of them are designed to be these, these pictures, these like rays of sun that are supposed to show us the glory of God. But when we try to build our life in the imminent frame, the here and now and material, what these guys say and what Jamie Smith says in his book is that imminent frame is haunted haunted by the ghosts of the transcendent. Like this sense that there's more. There's got to be more meaning. There's got to be something beyond death. There's got to be more than material things. There's got to be more. Like this sense that there's something more. This person is honing in on that reality, but he's not the only one. All of culture is a testimony to this. There's a famous novelist, English novelist named Julian Barnes, uh, who wrote... uh, a lot of different things. One book he wrote is uh, Nothing to be Frightened of. First sentence of the first chapter of his book, he says this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I miss him. Like I'm building my life apart from him because I don't think it's real, but I kind of want it to be real. Like something's still not right. 
It's really profound, profound vulnerability as he kind of questions his own worldview. Another great philosopher also played football named Tom Brady. Uh, Tom Brady is a 60-year-old football player uh, <laughs> who looks still like he's 17. Um, Tom Brady, this is a classic, a classic interview uh, on 60 Minutes with Steve Croft. This is in 2005. This is 17 years ago. He's being interviewed after having won three Super Bowls 17 years ago. I can't stand the guy or the football teams he's played for, but you've got to respect it. It's incredible. And in this, in this interview, Steve Croft asked, asked him a couple questions. One of them was like, is there anything you're afraid of? And he says, yeah, I'm afraid of life after my career because I don't, I, I, don't, I don't know how I'm going to get this kind of joy, satisfaction. And then he says this, Brady says this, you know, there's times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Like, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I mean, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? And Steve Croft says, what's the answer? And Tom Brady responds, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He built it, his beautiful wife, money, career, fame, fortune, and everything that comes with it. You know, um, he had all of it, all of it. And he says, something's missing. That, that, that thing that's missing, that sense that Tom Brady had or, or Julian Barnes had is what C.S. Lewis uses this German word, sangzucht, to describe. Lewis uses this word, sangzucht, where he, which he describes as that inconsolable longing for we know not what. Like, there's a longing that I can't satisfy, and I don't even know what it is. And so Lewis, in his, his really iconic chapter on hope in mere Christianity, says this. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's what this rich, young, influential person is feeling. Something is missing. And that's what many of you have felt to some degree. And we spend a lot of our life spinning our wheels, trying to fill the void, trying to fill those gaps. Meanwhile, we're still haunted. And you see everybody else that doesn't seem haunted because their Instagram life or their family life or their career life or their house or their possessions or their vacations or their hobbies seem like, man, they've got it. If I could just get there. You just spend this energy trying to fill it and it is an inconsolable longing because we... We weren't made to find satisfaction in those things. You know, we weren't made to find satisfaction in marriage or in family. Marriage and family is a gift. It's, in my own experience, like my favorite gift in the world that I get to experience. If I ask my family to satisfy my deepest longings for fulfillment, I will crush them because I will be asking them to give me something that they were not designed to give me. I will expect things from my spouse or from my kids that they can never satisfy. And I will leave disappointed or I will leave having crushed people, asking them to be something that they were never designed to be. Vocation is beautiful. Career is wonderful. Go out and make something of the world. Offer your gifts to, to build up the common good and offer something in service to the world. Get paid for it. Awesome. Vocation will not satisfy you. 
Career will not satisfy you. The next step up, the next career, the next job, the different company, the different company. The diff- all the we, we hop around for a little more, a little better, a little different, like thinking maybe this will satisfy, and it just, it won't. It won't. If you can just lock in a house, if you can just get into a house and move from renting to owning in Denver, that'll satisfy. It won't. If I could just get into a bigger house, if I could just get to that next stage, if I could get a relationship, if I could just do more recreational hobbies or get a job that gave me a little more freedom to get to the mountains, like then, and we are running and scrambling. And what this man is saying is he's come to Jesus. I've been working and, and trying and working and trying. I've got the stuff. And what else do I need to do? What else do I need to do? And watch what Jesus does here in the passage. It's powerful. It's odd. It's not what you'd expect. You expect him to say, like, it's not about what you do. It's about who you believe in, you know? Um, That's not what he says. He says, why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who is good. It's like, hey, you you think you can build the, the goodness of life through your activities as if, like, you could do all these good things and build a good life? There is a good one, and it's nothing that can be achieved or accumulated or accomplished in your life. There's a person who is good. If you would enter life... Follow the commandments and do what God said. That's the path to life. You're like, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. Pay attention to what Jesus is doing. What Jesus often does is he says things that would sort of like awaken, like that feels weird. Like you think about the, the woman at the well. You read about this in the Gospel of John, fourth chapter, when Jesus goes to her and, he, and he's interacting with her. She's drawing water and he asks her for a drink and they have this interaction. And he says, hey, why don't you go and call your husband? She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know that. Um, in fact, you've had several, seven. And the person you're with now isn't your husband at all. What, what's he doing there? Why is he going down that path? He, he is kind of honing in, mining into her deepest heart that there's something about marriage and relationships that, that she was pursuing life in, that she'd been running after, and she's finding empty, 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 this thirst and this desire in her that was not being satisfied even though she ran again and again and again and Jesus intervened, mined into the depth of her heart and showed her that there's a a different place to get water that satisfies, living water that will quench that thirst and it's not through relationships. With this man, he's honing into his morality and his possessions, his righteousness and his accumulations. He says this, the man says, well, which ones do I need to obey? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, Jesus quotes commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Okay? Commandment number 10, interestingly, is thou shalt not covet, which means you shouldn't desire stuff and more and more stuff and more and more stuff. Jesus withholds that one for the moment. And the first four commandments are all about God being the center of your life by putting no other idols before him, not taking his name in vain and trying to use your relationship with God to build your life your own way. Even Sabbath itself is saying, I trust God. I put God at the center of my week and of my life. And I trust his wisdom to provide and care for me and find rest in him. All these things, Jesus avoids those for now. And he, and he hones in on these ones that, to which the man can reply what he says here. All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Like, I've I've been doing it. I'm a good person. I've got it. I've I've followed the commandments. I've been doing it well. Something's still missing. Look at what he says. If you would be perfect, if you want the fullness of life under the reign of God, there's still something lacking. 
It says, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Is Jesus saying, you've been trying really hard. I grant that, but try harder. You've been, you've been doing a lot. You're a good guy. I get it. Got to be better. You got to be better. Now, what a crushing thing. What a crushing thing that would be. It's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is honing into is not like, hey, if you follow one more external behavioral norm, if you follow one more command, then you will have done enough and God will love you and accept you. You can have life with God forever. No, he's honing into the core issue in this man's heart, which is an issue of worship. An issue of worship. The idea of worship isn't about singing songs, though it's an act of worship to sing songs. The idea of worship is to orient your life around that which you think can satisfy your soul. That we are all worshipers, orienting our life around whatever we think can truly satisfy us. This man had oriented his life around pursuing righteousness and accumulating possessions and value and worth and finances. And he had all of these things, and he knew it wasn't enough. He knew that what he had chosen to worship wasn't satisfying him. And Jesus said, the way to experience life is to acknowledge that the way you've been building your life was was wrongheaded from the get-go. That you're building your life on the wrong foundation. You're looking for satisfaction from the wrong source. Or in the words of Jeremiah chapter 2, You had forsaken God, the fountain of living water. And you came over and you started hewing out cisterns, like broken cisterns out of rocks. The the rainwater comes in and you're trying to satisfy your thirst, but the water keeps leaking and the water that you do drink is tepid and and gross. and, And you're trying and you're trying to hew out all these cisterns and you forsook the fountain of living water. You're running over here trying to build your life around the things that can't give life. And the path to life is to turn and to say, I'm not going to trust in my possessions, my wealth, my career, my family, my recreation, my hobbies. I'm going to put my life on Jesus. I'm going to center my life on him, my relationship with him, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his wisdom, his mission, his purpose. I'm going with Jesus. So Jesus says, if you want, if you want it, sell that stuff. Surrender the life you've been trying to live as wrong-headed Turn from that and come follow me. And you will have treasure in heaven. It doesn't mean like some future day I'll give you a mansion with like, I always wanted like, I bet Jesus, if I like follow him, he'll give me like a mansion and I can have like a soccer field in the mansion and I can have like these things and like, like some future like possessions. What Jesus is saying is there are, there are immaterial treasures There are immaterial treasures that are so much greater. When you know him and you know his love and you know his joy and you know his peace and you know his kindness, you know his presence, when you're following his wisdom, there is joy to be had. And that joy, yes, lasts beyond the grave, but it's accessible today. It's accessible today for those that say, I'm not going to live for myself or for possessions or relationship or marriage or job or whatever it might be for you. I'm going to put Jesus at the center of my life. And for this man, it was too much to ask. It's too much to ask. He fundamentally didn't believe, in this moment at least, that Jesus was better. And so he went away sad. There's something missing. I feel that. 
I'm going to Jesus because it seems like he might have some wisdom about this. But when I hear from him what it would cost, the sticker shock was too much. It's too much. And he went away sad. I, I can't help but wonder in my own life this week and for us as a culture, like how many of us have come to that place where like there are certain things we'll give Jesus, but not everything. And we've asked Jesus to be an accessory to our pursuit of the good life, not the center of it. I'll take a little Jesus, maybe even a fair bit. I'll give him my Sundays, I'll give him some money, I'll give him some time, I'll give him this space, but like surrendering my life. Like surrendering everything and saying, I'm putting you at the center. You are the, you are the, you are the governing force of my pursuit of life and joy. I'm going to give you my evenings. I'm going to give you my mornings. I'm going to give you my, my money and my body and my career and my life and my family. I'm surrendering all of it. I'm giving you my guilt and my shame. And I'm going to be honest. I'm going to confess the reality of my brokenness. I'm going to come to you and give you everything. Believing that what he has to offer is exactly what was designed to satisfy your soul. Joy, peace, forgiveness, covenant love. A lot of us have a hard time there. And this man walked away sad. And in that space, Jesus, at least in Matthew's narrative, immediately turns and he starts using this as a teaching moment with his followers. And he says to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, when Jesus gives this analogy saying like, hey, if you've, if you've built your whole life and you, you've got all this stuff and you've accumulated and you've got more than most, and, uh, and you've accumulated these possessions and experiences and righteousness. And like, to come to a place where you're admitting that that was like a wrong-headed approach to life, so, man, it takes an incredible kind of surrender. In fact, it, it's such a powerful act of surrender that humans can't do it on their own. Because to come to the place where you believe that Jesus is better than this is a work of miraculous faith. What Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a superior affection. Like to get to a place where you're ready to like say no to like the American dream of, of life through our accumulation, possession, relationship, family, career, all the things, our hobbies and our comfort and our financial security, all that. And I'm going to say no to that and yes to Jesus means I have to come to a place where I see Jesus as better as better. What he gives us better. In fact, the way Jesus will talk about the nature of his kingdom, he says it's kind of like this. Like a man stumbles on a treasure in a field, and he's so overwhelmed with the value of the treasure he's found that he buries it up real quick, makes sure nobody's looking, buries it, in his joy goes and sells everything he has so he can buy the field. Notice the emotions in these two characters. In this passage, he walks away sad. In Jesus' parable, the man in his joy says, gone, gone. If I came here today, I'm like, sell all your money and follow Jesus so that he'll love you. And like, we just felt like this obligation to like do this stuff because Jesus told you to and, and he's just going to kind of like suck the life out of you and give you a drudgery, boring kind of existence. And 
But like, you better do it because he said so. That's not compelling. But if you saw the love of Christ for you, if you believe you're a created being designed to find life in God's wisdom, in God's love, designed to find life from him, with him, through him, to experience the goodness and the joy of life, even in the brokenness and the pain of this world while we await the day when he comes again and makes all things new, if you can get to the place where you believe that and you believe that I've been hewing out broken cisterns of tepid, nasty water that can't even hold water and I'm finding myself like coming to the realization that this is not, this can't be, like Brady said, all that it's cracked up to be. If you can get there and say Jesus is better, and what God does through people like that is stunning. Look at the passage. It says, when the disciples heard this, they were astonished, saying, well, then who can be saved? Like, if, it, if, it, if it's that significant, if it's that kind of all of life surrender, whole life surrender to follow you, like, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And then Peter said, and I just imagine Peter scratching his head, thinking, like, wait a second. I did that. I, like, left my career and my family and my possessions and Guys, we, we did that. Like, we're following him. We abandoned that. We're following him. And so, so Peter's like, wait, so wait, what do we get? You know, like, uh, what does that mean for me? Peter says, like, I've been doing that. And for some of you, you have. You've been surrendered. Like, what does that mean? And Jesus doesn't, like, knock down the desire for clarity about that. He speaks to it. He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on... 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. What Jesus says is as this group of followers, men and women who had decided to follow Jesus and had turned to him in faith, he's saying, stay with me. Yeah, there's difficulty, and yeah, there's hardship, and as people assess your life and see the the rich young man who walked away and see you sometimes not having a pillow to sleep on, sometimes struggling to make ends meet, suffering, being persecuted, being imprisoned. As they see that, that's going to seem like you're at the bottom and they're at the top. But the good news about my kingdom is that it's upside down. Like those who are last will be first. And the first will be last. If you try to save your life, you will lose it, Jesus said. But if you lose your life for my sake and for the gospels, you will keep it. You will find it. Or in the famous quote from from Jim Elliott, the missionary, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He says, you will find it. And these followers did. And they followed Jesus, and they watched Jesus go down, down, down. That he had done exactly what he was saying. He had emptied himself one with the Father and the Spirit and glory, had emptied himself, had become a human being, down. And as a human being, he became a servant among human beings, down. And as a servant, he served even to the point of death, down. Even death on a cross, down. And what Paul says in Philippians 2 is that's why Jesus receives the highest glory and is given the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. When Jesus laid down his life for us, he's inviting us through his atoning death into a relationship with God and into a relationship that's marked by forgiveness and love and freedom in the presence of God with us. But he's not just redeeming us into that relationship. He's opening up for us a vision of life where you can lay down your life sacrificially and find joy and meaning and purpose and abundance. That if you empty yourself, you're not emptying yourself to nothingness. You're losing the things you cannot keep to gain that which you, you cannot lose. And Jesus showed us the way. And men and women have been following Jesus faithfully like that for generations. And they would say, even the ones who are imprisoned, even the ones who lost their lives, even the ones who died, not having seen the, the great fruitfulness of all of their labors, would say, as they sit now with Jesus and as they await that resurrection of the dead, it's worth it. It's worth it. And that takes a work of the Spirit to give us that kind of passion, that kind of faith. What would Jesus do through a community like this if we had more people fully surrendered, giving Jesus everything? Give him your evenings. Instead of what? Countless hours of meaningless TV? Like, what TV's of treasure. You're like, I mean, that kind of stings a little bit. It stung me this week. I felt some conviction around that. I'm not, I, I'm using, I felt some conviction around like the way I use my evenings. I've got a family. I've got neighbors, a community here. Jesus is like present and I spend ridiculous amounts of time doing stuff that matters zero. Does that mean like do something like that? And God will love you? No, it's, it's for the sake of the treasure. What is there in your life that you could give up? So here's the question. Here's the question. Is Jesus an accessory to your pursuit of the good life? Or is he central to it? Or is he central to it? And if you want him to be central, it's probably not binary. There's, we ebb and flow out of it. There's stuff that I hold back, and there's stuff, moments of surrender and faith, and there's times of just sin and wandering. So here's a question I've been asking that I would ask you, and it's simply this. What is something that I could or should give up that would help me put Christ and his kingdom at the center of my life? Am I saying this like create a a gospel of works? Like if you do this, God will love you. I'm I'm, I'm saying this because I feel an invitation to, to more joy personally to more meaning, to more life, to richer, fuller life with Christ at the center. But I feel the things in my life that are keeping me back from that. And they're going to be different for me than they are for you. So maybe for you to open yourself up to the Spirit and say, God, is there something that I could or that you would even call me to, like you did for this man? Surrender. Something I could surrender. I'm going to give you my evenings. Or maybe that's too much. I'm going to give you my Tuesday evenings. I'm going to give you my media habits. I'm going to give you my, my honor. There's something I've been holding on to, a sin struggle I've been holding on to, and I don't want people to think less of me, but I feel it's holding me back. And so I'm going to give you my honor, and I'm going to walk in the light and let come what may relationally because I want freedom. I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to surrender that to you. I'm going to surrender to you the, 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 the career I'm trying to build. I, I, I'm just spending all of my energy trying to like build this career so that I can like get to that next level. And I want to surrender that. I want to trust you with that. And I want to put you at the center. It's going to look different. If I prescribed what it needs to look like for you, it would be creating a new kind of thing. 
but the Holy Spirit might want to do some work in your life, and I'd invite us to consider it. Not merely as this like duty, but as an invitation to deeper joy in Jesus. To exercise that muscle of faith and see what God might do to build in you a sense of joy in him. Let's pray that he would do something powerful among us. Jesus, we come right now and we just confess that we need you. And so would you this morning uh, pour out your spirit on us? Would you speak in power to us? If there are things that we need to turn from, if there are things we need to let go of, would you be clear to us? If there are things you'd call us to surrender, would you be clear? And where people feel maybe guilt or shame, would you remind them of your, your, your love? Your steadfast love is better than life. That we wouldn't be mot- motivated by guilt or shame, but we'd be motivated by your love, motivated by your grace, motivated by your mercy, knowing that you already paid it all. You gave your life for us. You emptied yourself for us. You surrendered for us. So help us to believe. Give us increased faith in who you are and the treasure that you are, that we'd follow you with our whole lives. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.